This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. He is grave, rather thoughtful, occasionally severe, not inflated nor egoistic, very exact in all his motions, which show at once in a patient heart and methodical head. Not the exactness of a special pleader, but of a most skillful, self-possessed fencing master. He speaks with a frankness so much above fear that you think he has no reserve. He is a pleasing man with a soldier drawing into the politician. He could never have been a trifler in his life. This description, written by William Vance Murray, was of a man who would come to dominate European politics for the next decade and a half. A man who would prove to be at times a friend and at other times an adversary to the United States. A man whose legacy in the annals of history is still being debated to this day. We have met him previously, but in this episode, we will finally get to the ascension of Napoleon Bonaparte to the head of the French government. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome all of you to the presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to say a special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the audio for this episode's intro quote. I asked him to do the quote for this episode in order to give me a chance to wish him a very happy birthday, as his birthday is coming up this week. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast today if not for him, as he was the one who encouraged me to start podcasting in order to share what I've learned in my studies of history. He supported me in so many ways over the years, through good times and not so good, and I can't imagine my life without him. I love you so much, and I hope this is a wonderful birthday for you. I know it may seem weird that I spend so much time on this podcast discussing what's going on in France, but if it's to be done accurately, it's impossible to discuss American history, especially the history of the presidency, without discussing what's going on in other parts of the world. What has come to be called the first party system with Federalist and Democratic Republicans was in many ways built upon whether one identified as more of a supporter of Britain or France. Much ink in newspapers of the time was spent on debating whether the nation should support one of those European nations or the other. Most of the early cabinet meetings were held because there was some crisis involving either the British or the French government. There is much more detail about European affairs of the time that I could go into, but I leave that to some of the other fantastic podcasts out there that do focus on British or French history, and for my purposes, only provide you with what I think you will need to know in order to better understand the impact of what's happening abroad on presidential history. I know it doesn't always seem like it, but I try to ensure that the details I throw in are for a purpose. For that reason, before we check in on the second peace commission to France, we need to discuss the next major shakeup in the French government. As mentioned two episodes back, the coup of Prairial would not be the last shakeup in the French government in 1799. When we last left Napoleon in episode 2.13, he was not making any friends or progress in the Middle East. His troops were demoralized, his command was isolated, the insurgency was growing, and the Ottoman Empire was preparing to launch its military against the French occupying force. At some point, 
Napoleon decided that the time was right to make his exit. He made his way back to Cairo on August 11th, and upon getting reports on the situation there, secretly began to make plans to travel to Alexandria, where he had ordered four ships to be prepared. On the evening of the 17th, Napoleon and a few close associates departed in a carriage from Cairo on a hastily announced inspection tour of northern Egypt, and by midnight, key subordinates were on the move as well. His successor as commander-in-chief of the forces in Egypt would only receive notification of Napoleon's departure and his promotion to full command by letter. This general, Jean-Baptiste Kleber, would be the one left to deal with the mess that Napoleon had created with his ill-planned scheme, while the Corsican general and his chosen few would set sail on the 23rd for France. As noted by Napoleon biographer Alan Schoen, quote, he, Napoleon, had left in his wake burning villages, an empty treasury, an army decimated by battle, climate, and disease, its morale absolutely shattered, surrounded by a resentful, hostile Muslim population just waiting for the first ripe occasion to turn on them. An army of more than 30,000 had been reduced to perhaps 12,000. Kleber, whom he now left in command, would be assassinated in the gardens of the Elfi Palace the following June by a knife-wielding Arab who claimed that he wished to shake his hand. At this point, dear listener, you're asking yourself how in the world this bumbler Napoleon ended up in charge of France. Well, that would be due to a whole lot of luck and support from behind the scenes. To start with, the addition of Emmanuel Joseph Sias to the directory pretty much sealed the directory government's doom. C.S. was opposed to the government under the Constitution of Year 3 from the beginning, and once in a position of authority, he used the opportunity of the coup of Prairial to replace the heads of key ministries, including the Minister of War, with more pliant candidates. Meanwhile, the Directory was faced with threats from numerous sectors of the political spectrum. Royalist uprisings began in Toulouse and the western part of France, while the Jacobins began demanding for all existing laws which were contrary to the Constitution, i.e., those that had been put into place during the various coups over the past couple of years, be revoked and that property in the nation be redistributed to the lower classes. As had been done before, the Jacobin clubs were banned and Jacobin partisans turned out of the government. However, the problems were mounting too fast for the directory to respond. A key general, Bartholomew Joubert, was killed in battle against the combined Austrian-Russian force. At the end of August, a joint British-Russian force landed in Holland. Meanwhile, C.S. continued to plot to overthrow the Directory government. His plan called for a new constitutional republic with two consuls at the head. Naturally, C.S. would be one, but he realized that in order to make his plan come to fruition, he would need support from the army. He had previously worked to cultivate Joubert, but his death in the Battle of Novi threw a wrench into that plan. Luckily for C.S., news arrived in Paris on October 13th of Napoleon's return to France. Napoleon and his party had landed in Saint-Raphael Bay in southern France a few days prior to cheering crowds. The slow crawl of news at the end of the 18th century worked to Napoleon's benefit upon his return to France in October. The crowds who gathered to greet him did not know of all the setbacks that he had faced in the past few months. The last news that they had received was of the successful conquest of Malta and Egypt, most of the news coming from Napoleon's own glowing reports of his progress. And even the French government had just received Napoleon's last report from Egypt the day before the general's arrival on French soil. Naturally, 
The report that they received was news of a victory, so the directory, quote, ordered celebratory artillery salvos fired through the city of Paris, joined by the peal of bells from the capital's hundreds of desecrated churches. However, when they learned that Napoleon was actually in France and on his way to Paris, the directors began to grow concerned. Technically, Napoleon was AWOL, as he had not been given orders to leave Egypt. But who was going to have the one remaining victorious general arrested? Thus, he received a hero's welcome all along the route and arrived in Paris on the morning of the 16th. It wasn't long before he was meeting with various political leaders, including our old friend Talleyrand. That's right, the ultimate political survivor, Talleyrand was sensing that the directory was not long for this world, and thus wanted a first-hand opportunity to help shape what was to come. Napoleon and his supporters also had allies within the directory, with CS being the key player. Talleyrand had convinced Bonaparte to bring CS into the fold, and once he did, both the general and the director began to see a clear path to bringing down the directory government. As those familiar with Napoleon's later history may know, he saw his family as key to his rise to power and the establishment of a new order. This point in his career would prove to be no exception, as, to cultivate support within the political establishment, he worked in tandem with his brother Joseph, a member of the Council of Ancients, and his brother Lucien, who on October 25th was able to win election as the president of the Council of 500, despite being six years younger than the constitutional age required to hold the office. The directors who were not in on the plot would attempt to strike back on October 28th when they called Napoleon to appear before them to answer charges of desertion and of having abused his military positions to the personal benefit of himself and his family. This late attack would not be enough to thwart the general, however. And just before dawn on November 9th, or 18 Brumaire in the French Republican calendar, the plan that had been devised went into motion. Without going into too much detail, as Mike Duncan has already covered this in his Revolutions podcast, a link to which will be available on the source notes page of this episode, the plan involved getting the directors not in on the plot to resign, while at the same time manipulating the constitutional legislative assemblies to put Napoleon in charge of the 17th military district, which would give him command of the approximately 10,000 troops in and around Paris. Then, the legislature would be convinced to move their proceedings out of the city so that Jacobins could not interfere in the final coup de grace of having the councils declare the constitution of the year three to be defunct. Though there were some nail-biting moments, what would come to be known as the coup of 18 Brumaire would prove to be successful, and a temporary government was installed until a new constitution could be crafted. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Meanwhile, on the same day that the coup of 18 Brumaire was taking place, Supreme Court Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth and Governor of North Carolina William R. Davey were on board the USS United States that had departed from Newport, Rhode Island on November 3rd, making their way across the Atlantic. General Alexander Hamilton had made a last-ditch effort to throw a wrench into the peace mission by trying to convince Ellsworth to refuse to make the crossing to Europe. 
But though Ellsworth had his concerns about the mission, he felt duty-bound to proceed. Thus, the two set foot on European soil at Lisbon, Portugal on October 27th, where they would attempt to gain a sense of the political landscape in Europe before proceeding to Paris. One of the first bits of news that they received after their landing would be of the coup in France. Growing concerned of whether their efforts were in vain and that they might not be recognized by the new government, Ellsworth and Davy began to make preparations to travel to The Hague to confer with the third member of their commission, William Vance Murray. Harsh winter weather, however, would detain them in the South. Murray, meanwhile, had spent the majority of the year while waiting for his colleagues to arrive and gathering as much intelligence as he could and consulting with the U.S. Minister to Prussia, John Quincy Adams. Not only did the two men realize how precarious the position was diplomatically in Europe, but they also recognized the danger of a growing factional fervor within the Federalist ranks back in the States. After learning of the uproar over his initial appointment as Minister to France and realizing that he was right in the middle of the interfactional melee, Murray wrote to John Quincy that, quote, more than ever, I need your friendship. They were determined, however, in the face of all of these threats to work together to forge a path towards peace. Secretary of State Pickering would critique Murray's initial outreach to Talleyrand, discussed in episode 2.16, as Pickering felt that the language was too eager and cordial for a man who Pickering considered, quote, a shameless villain. Murray would counter with a letter to Pickering defending himself and his choice of language, asserting that, quote, words of roughness never add dignity to weakness. Words of mere civility no more detract from substantial strength than an embossed scabbard does from the polished and strong blade which it surrounds. Murray was no James Monroe with a fraternal embrace of the French revolutionaries, but he was also not an Anglophile warmonger. He was a diplomat and was determined to do what he could to make peace, even if it made an enemy of the Secretary of State. Murray went so far as to, probably quite accurately, state to Pickering that, quote, you have been angry at the thing itself, and no manner of success could have pleased you. I cannot help regretting sincerely the loss of your friendship, but the terms, the harsh and ungenerous terms on which you have withdrawn it from such a man as I am, conscious I am as an American, have helped me to bear it. When Talleyrand was forced from office as French foreign minister in July 1799, he was replaced by Charles Frédéric Reinhardt, but it seems that Murray had little interaction with Reinhardt during his brief tenure in office. According to Murray biographer Peter P. Hill, that was likely a benefit as the only two state papers remaining related to Franco-American relations from Reinhardt's tenure reveal that Reinhardt was proposing that an envoy be sent to the U.S., quote, to rouse the American people against their government as the preliminary to disclosing that he had come to make a treaty and that the terms would include, quote, a demand for a revision of Jay's treaty, a call for full execution of the Franco-American treaties of 1778, and an even closer alliance. As stated earlier this episode, part of the lack of communication between Murray and Reinhardt can be attributed to the disruption that came from the Anglo-American force landing in northern Holland in August. The invasion would last for two months before the British and Russian forces withdrew in October. Soon after, Murray received word of the coup of 18 Brumaire, which was closely followed with news of who would be the new French foreign minister. In his consolidation of power following the coup, Napoleon adopted a modified version of Sieste's proposal for the new government of France. 
First by dictate, then by a new constitution, a three-man consulate was established, with Napoleon, of course, stepping into the senior position of first consul, joined by Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambasset as second consul, and Charles-François Lebrun as third consul. Three new legislative houses were also established, a senate whose members were named by Napoleon, and from which all new legislative bills were to originate, a tribunate with 100 members who would discuss all legislative proposals from the Senate, and a corps législatif of 300 members that would then vote on the proposals without debate. Napoleon would also place new leaders that he could trust in charge of the executive departments. It should come as little surprise that the man tapped to head the foreign office was none other than our old friend Talleyrand. Murray, from his position at The Hague, viewed both the coup and Talleyrand's return as foreign minister as positive signs for the likelihood of a diplomatic resolution between the U.S. and France. As Napoleon would be more focused on establishing a stronger foundation for himself, a quick peace with the U.S. would work to his advantage as it would reestablish a lucrative trade between the two nations and went over to Napoleon's side merchant houses throughout the nation that had suffered from diminished trade during the French Revolutionary Wars. Meanwhile, Talleyrand had already demonstrated a willingness to work with the Americans. Murray was mindful of the calendar, however. It was already the end of 1799 and a new presidential election was just around the corner. A delayed diplomatic settlement could hurt both Adams and the United States and might just work to sweep a new president into office. However, there was little Murray could do to move things along until the arrival of his colleagues. Though he heard rumors of Ellsworth and Davies landing in Lisbon in late December, it wouldn't be until January 30, 1800, that Murray would receive official confirmation that his fellow commissioners had successfully crossed the Atlantic. By that point, the two Americans had left Lisbon, bound for France. With the intelligence they were receiving, Ellsworth and Davy were convinced that, despite the recent change in government, they would be received by the consulate. And thus, on December 21, 1799, they set sail, bound for France. As with their original idea of joining Murray in The Hague, they would find that the winter weather prevented them from making the journey by sea and would instead end up at a Spanish port from which they would have to proceed over 900 miles overland. As discussed in episode 1.30, overland travel in Spain was not easy, nor would it be much better in southern France. Thus, it would not be until March 2nd before Ellsworth and Davy arrived in Paris. Murray, meanwhile, had put his affairs in The Hague in order before his departure for Paris on February 17th. His correspondence of the time provides some clues, according to his biographer Peter Hill, that he was rather annoyed at having received limited information from his colleagues about their whereabouts and plans. But all of that fell to the wayside in early February when news arrived in Europe of Washington's death. As noted by Hill, Murray had been, quote, shaken by the news. But, quote, in his grief, Murray was gratified that all Europe seemed to be in mourning with him. Even in Paris, the eulogies flowed freely. Talleyrand suggested to Bonaparte that by honoring Washington, the first consul could improve the climate for the forthcoming negotiations. At the foreign minister's suggestion, Bonaparte ordered a statue raised in Washington's honor. And with the first consul's blessing, a returned emigre named Louis Fontaine gave a long funeral oration in the Temple of Mars. 
Thus, upon Murray's departure, he wrote to John Quincy Adams that he felt Napoleon would ensure that the diplomatic mission was a success and that the two nations would arrive at an understanding this time. Murray only beat his colleagues to Paris by day. Finally gathered together for the first time, the new U.S. Peace Commission would have a chance to size one another up as they began their official mission. Ellsworth and Murray had been previously acquainted during their respective tenures in the nation's capital of Philadelphia, but Murray and Davy were meeting for the first time. Again, from Hill, quote, Whatever warm greetings may have been exchanged during these near-coincidental arrivals, Murray soon found himself cordially disliking his fellow commissioners. Hill felt that Murray may have been justified in his animosity towards his comrades, for, as we should note of Ellsworth and Davy, quote, Neither man had any diplomatic experience, any first-hand familiarity with Europe, nor even a knowledge of the French language. Ellsworth and Davy, meanwhile, had had an opportunity to develop a closer relationship over the past year, with Ellsworth initially traveling to Halifax, North Carolina, to meet with Davy in March 1799, and with the two having crossed the Atlantic and having traveled across land through Europe together. Despite any initial fractions within the commission, they would, in less than a week of their arrival, make further progress than the 1797 commission. Despite their commissions having been made out to the directory government, First Consul Napoleon offered no objection to their recognition and, on March 7th, quote, received the envoys with pomp and honors at the Tuileries Palace in the Hall of the Ambassadors. Two days later, the Americans would learn who their French counterparts would be at the negotiating table. Foreign Minister Talleyrand had put forward, quote, experienced diplomats who were familiar with the United States. But in an early sign of the autocratic rule to come, Napoleon ignored Talleyrand's suggestions and instead appointed, quote, Pierre-Louis Roderoy, counselor of state, politician, economist, and ideologue who admired Americans, Charles-Pierre Clairoy Friolieu, also a counselor of state, a minister of marine under Louis XVI, and a prominent author, and serving as head commissioner, Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte. While the commissioners are getting settled into their new roles, we'll go ahead and bid adieu to them and check in with other developments. President Adams began the new year by taking the opportunity to write to his friend Cotton Tufts as follows, quote, I congratulate you on the new year and the new century. Aspice venturo latentu ut omnia scelo. For those not as familiar with their Virgil in the original, I'll let David McCullough translate. Quote, Look how they are full of joy at the age to come. Despite the optimistic start, American officials on both sides of the Atlantic were starting to express concerns about the state of affairs with the Barbary states. As we discussed back in episodes 1.21 and 1.30, the Barbary states were an essentially autonomous set of powers on the coast of North Africa who preyed on shipping in the Mediterranean unless tribute was paid. The European powers who engaged in trade in that part of the world either paid the tribute or had a large naval presence to protect its shipping. After independence, it had been a sticking point with the American merchants that they were no longer under British naval protection, and thus, the Washington administration had engaged in diplomacy to pay tribute. Though a treaty with the Bay of Tunis, Hamouda ibn Ali, had been negotiated back in August 1797, the Senate had requested a revision to the text, quote, to guarantee reciprocity of trade relations between the two countries, and with the communication lag and additional negotiations, it wouldn't be until mid-January 1800 that the full ratification would go through. 
though the cost of the tribute in the Treaty of Tunis was less than that accorded to other Barbary powers. The ultimate cost of the combined treaties would be around $1.25 million, which at that point was just over 20% of the annual budget of the federal government. Even Adams' own son, U.S. Minister to Prussia John Quincy Adams, was beginning to question the administration's policy towards the Barbary states. John Quincy wrote to Secretary of State Pickering on January 14, 1800 that, quote, All the security which our navigation can enjoy in the Mediterranean by virtue of any treaty with the Barbary powers must be precarious. And even to obtain that security, we have submitted to an expense so much more considerable than had ever before been applied to that purpose by any European power. At the end of the Washington administration and the beginning of the Adams administration, paying the tribute had been the only option. But now, the nation had a navy which, though described by historian Ian Tull as, quote, small but respectable, contained some of, quote, the most powerful ships of their class in any navy in the world. Though this force was currently employed primarily in the Caribbean, protecting American shipping there, U.S. Minister Adams sent along a proposal for a joint operation with the Swedish and Danish navies in the Mediterranean to protect their respective merchant ships from attacks from the Barbary forces. While John Quincy's focus was not just on the enormous cost, both in terms of funds and prestige for the nation, as well as the likelihood that giving in to the demands of the Barbary states would only mean larger demands in the future, it would later in the year be demonstrated that, even with the treaties in place, American shipping was not safe. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy continued to prove its worth. With the U.S. naval forces in place in the Caribbean in 1799, American shipping saw a nearly two-thirds drop in the number of U.S. vessels captured by the French, and a congressional study would conclude that the naval presence had resulted in a savings of over $9 million in U.S. shipping costs. However, there were still issues to be worked out in naval operations. Captain Thomas Truxton, the now-famous commander of the USS Constellation that was discussed back in episode 2.13, and his ship had returned to the U.S. mid-year in 1799 to have the guns on the Constellation replaced. And when they returned to the Lesser Antilles in January 1800, Truxton would find most of the squadron under his command moored in the harbor in Bestia Roads, despite orders from the Naval Department that ships in the squadron remain, quote, constantly cruising. After sorting a squadron out, Truxton set sail aboard the Constellation and, upon arriving at St. Kitts, learned of two French ships anchored at Guadeloupe. He decided to seek another victory to match the one against Les Sergeants the year prior and ordered the Constellation out to the open seas on January 30th. Funny enough, the Constellation would encounter Les Sergeants, now in service in the U.S. Navy, the next day as the latter ship escorted a convoy of merchant ships north. Two days out from St. Kitts, the Constellation's lookout spotted a large ship, quote, about two leagues distant in the southeast that morning. Truxton initially thought it was a British ship and ordered the British ensign hoisted, but the other ship kept on her course and, rather than make any signal in response, instead, quote, flashed out studding sails in an apparent attempt to gain speed. As Truxton would soon discover, this was in fact the 54-gun frigate La Vengeance. La Vengeance had a heavier broadside and had more guns than the Constellation, but its captain, François-Marie Pitot, was determined to proceed with plans to return to France rather than engage an enemy ship. Truxton would not give up that easily, however. Throughout the day, the Constellation's crew would remain at battle stations as they drew slowly but surely closer to La Vengeance. 
At around 8 that evening, Captain Truxton would use his speaking trumpet to communicate to Pitot his, quote, demand for the surrender of his ship to the United States of America. Pitot's response was quick in coming as, quote, a cannon was fired through the Frenchman's stern ports. Truxton ordered the Constellation's guns to be brought to bear so that they could launch a full broadside against the French vessel, and with about 300 yards between them, the order to fire was given. As described by Ian Toll, quote, La Vengeance responded, and then the gun crews on both ships continued firing and reloading as quickly as they could. There was little maneuvering. The frigates ran on parallel courses, trading broadsides from middle range, pounding each other relentlessly. Truxton would later write of the battle that it was, quote, as sharp an action as ever was fought between two frigates. The Constellation would at one point in the battle suffer heavy damage, which made it lose its ability to maneuver, and La Vengeance attempted to escape. However, with its new stays in place, the American ship was able to keep up the assault. At two points in the battle, quote, both captains called for boarding parties, as it seemed that the ships were about to engage in man-to-man combat, but the moment never arrived. Conflicting reports present the possibility that Pitot at one point considered surrendering, but the battle kept on through the darkness of night. At one o'clock, the guns of La Vengeance finally fell silent. The French had suffered heavy casualties, but the Constellation was not able to take advantage of the situation as its main mast broke and fell into the sea, taking with it all but one of the top men. The ship's surgeon described the condition of the ship at this point as, quote, the most perfect wreck you ever saw. La Vengeance was able to hobble away to the Dutch colony of Curaçao, though it was touch and go the entire way that they would actually make it there. Again from Toll, quote, The action had left her, i.e. La Vengeance, in a sinking condition, with six feet of water in her hold and an estimated 200 shot holes in her hull. Pitot would have to put civilians and American prisoners on board to work to keep the ship afloat until they ran aground on the beach at Curaçao. Meanwhile, Truxton ordered the Constellation to the British colony of Jamaica as there was no hope to bring the ship back to St. Kitts and they could expect little help from the closer French colony of Saint-Domingue or the Spanish colony of Cuba. The 700-mile journey took a week, but the Constellation finally sailed into Port Royal on February 8th where British Admiral Hyde Parker came on board to greet Truxton. Though the battle had ended inconclusively, in terms of bragging rights, it was clear that the Americans had won those. Despite La Vengeance outgunning the Constellation by nearly 50%, even Capitaine Pitot had to admit in his report of the battle that, quote, the American gun crews had worked twice as fast as their adversaries. Though Pitot would only report 28 killed and 40 wounded, this conflicts with other reports from Curaçao that put the casualties at closer to 160. If so, the French, quote, had suffered four casualties for every one suffered by the Constellation. Yet again, the American Navy had proven itself to be a force to be reckoned with on the high seas. Though many of the initial events of 1800, the Peace Commission's arrival in Paris, the debate over how to deal with the Barbary states, and the U.S. Navy engaging the French in the Caribbean seem at first glance to be news that we've heard before, it was clear that the reality of the situations were different now. The leadership and the capabilities of the United States were changing from the America under President Washington. What it was becoming was still not clear, but we shall continue to explore these changes next time in an episode I'd like to call Don't Let the Door Hit You. Thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. 
For sources used, as well as to catch up with past episodes, or to find the many options to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you like what you've heard and are listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a rating and review, as those help to bring in new listeners. If you have any questions or comments, there are numerous ways to reach me. If you prefer email, I can be reached at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be found on social media, including Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.